Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. It's so great to be with you today, and I'm excited to talk about our apostles. You know, we'll call this episode 13, The Role of Apostles, and I just want to convey, you know, several themes here. One of them is, you know, sometimes we forget that these are men that in the prime of their careers, they literally left everything behind and went and served the Lord full-time in many cases, leaving behind a successful career, the opportunity to make a lot of money or a lot more money. But these men serve until the day that they die. They wear their lives out in exhaustion. And I know that I often tell my classes that when I'm their age, when I'm in my you know, mid to late 60s, 70s, 80s, I would love to be on a golf course somewhere and then hanging out with my grandkids, you know, but... But these men are willing to give everything, their entire lives, to building up the kingdom. When President Holland was the uh, president of BYU in the early 80s, he attended a meeting at the church administration building with members of the BYU Board of Trustees. Now, including in that meeting were members of the First Presidency at the time, which were President Kimball, President Tanner, and President Romney. And here's what Elder Holland said. He said, I remember thinking, almost weeping, at how tired they looked. Elder Holland said of these seasoned leaders who in any other circumstance would be spending their retirement years relaxing, but of their calling to senior leadership, they were just working, 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 four workings, anyway. But then when the meeting started, all three of these men came alive. The mantle of their calling settled on them and they became energized. They were engaged in the conversation. They knew the issues. If it was financial, they knew the financial implications. If it was numerical, they knew how many members of the church it affected. The longer the meeting went, the more energized they became until by the end, I was exhausted, Elder Holland said. I was tired and they were fresh and renewed. And Elder Holland has said that he had carried that image with him for a long time. It still sustains me. And it reminds him of that moment or that occasion where President Spencer W. Kimball said that My life is like my shoes to be worn out in the service of the Lord. And that, to me, is an incredible commentary on the sacrifices that these men, their wives, and their families make so that they could serve the Lord in every way possible. Another theme that I would love to share is this idea that before these men were called to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, In fact, in many cases, before they were called even to be general authorities, they were awesome, wonderful men, the kind of men that we would love to hang out with and associate with. And one of these great stories comes from Joseph E. Worthland, who shared it in his great talk, The Virtue of Kindness. He told the story of Elder James E. Faust. And President Faust was a man remembered for his doctrinal teachings, But he showed great kindness as well, and in this specific case, kindness to a neighbor family in distress. It says in the story that they were complete strangers to Elder Talmadge. Before he was an apostle, 
As young father, he became aware of the great suffering at a neighbor's home whose large family was stricken with the dreaded diphtheria. He didn't care that they were not members of the church. His kindness and charity moved him to act. The Relief Society was desperately trying to find people to help, but no one would because of the contagious nature of the disease. When he arrived, James found one toddler already dead and two others who were in agony from the disease. He immediately went to work cleaning the untidy house, preparing the young body for burial, cleaning and providing for the other sick children, spending an entire day doing so. He came back the next morning to find that one more of the children had died during the night. A a third child was still suffering terribly. He wrote in his journal, She clung to my neck, oftentimes coughing germs on my face and clothing, yet I could not put her away from me. During the half hour immediately preceding her death, I walked the floor with this little creature in my arms. She died in agony at 10 o'clock a.m. The three children had all departed within the space of 24 hours. He then assisted the family with the burial arrangements and spoke at their graveside services. This he did for a family of strangers. What a great example of Christ-like kindness. Now, once again, I use that to share the example that our apostles and prophets have, have been great men for a long time, long before the church even knew who they were. Another theme is that there's no trajectory, there's no template of how apostles are called. They come from a various a variety of backgrounds. In fact, this is Elder Packer talking, but he said, Elder Nelson was a pioneer heart surgeon. Several in the Quorum of the Twelve, by the way, during Elder Packer's day, were military men. Others have, we know, have been attorneys and served as corporation heads. Others have served in capacities in education. Several of our leaders today were presidents of church schools. Now I'm back to Elder Packer. He said they've held a variety various positions in the church. Home teachers, teachers, missionaries, quorum presidents, bishops and stake presidents, mission presidents, and husbands and fathers. They are all students and teachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what unites us is our love of the Savior and his father's children and our witness that he stands at the head of the church. That's what they have in common. It's their love of the gospel, their testimonies and witness of the Savior. Almost to a man, Elder Packer said, the twelve come from humble beginnings, as it was when Christ was on the earth. The living twelve are welded together in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the call came, each has put down their nets, so to speak, and followed the Lord. I think that's so powerful. And then he quotes that great statement that I've already shared that from President Kimball, that my life is like my shoes to be worn out in his service. Or in other words, there's no qualifications, though. It's not that we are looking for men who have been bishops, stake presidents, mission presidents, and now apostles. Many of them have had different trajectories. Uh, it's probably surprising how many of them have not been bishops, how many of them have not been stake presidents or mission presidents. They all have come from a variety of backgrounds and experiences. And then Elder Packer said this, he says, although although there are many qualifications that I lack, there is so much in my effort to serve that is wanting, but there is only one single thing, one qualification that can explain it. Or in other words, one qualification that can explain my call. Like Peter and all those who have since been ordained, I have that witness, he said. 
The witness is the common denominator. Elder Packer said, I know that God is our Father. He introduced His Son, Jesus Christ, to Joseph Smith. I declare to you that I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that He lives. He was born in the meridian of time, and He taught His gospel and was tried. He suffered and was crucified and resurrected on the third day. Of Him I bear witness, Elder Packer said. These are men who are each filled with the power of God. Let me share a couple of of experiences that would indicate or speak to that power. One comes from the life of Elder Bruce R. McConkie, and this is in his biography, Reflections of a Son by Joseph Fielding McConkie. Well, it's called the Bruce R. McConkie story, Reflections of a Son. Here's the story. Another remarkable instance of the power of faith is that of a woman, a mother of two who had contracted a rare blood disease. And though not fatal, it prohibited her from having more children. In an administration at the hands of her husband, she received the promise that her body would heal itself. Yet all medical efforts proved painful, frustrating, and ineffective. And at a state conference attended by a member of the Twelve, she experienced the impression that if her faith were great enough, she could be healed. She labored to increase her faith. Six months later, another apostle, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, was sent to the stake in which she lived. Her children were ill that Sunday, and though she usually would have been the one to stay home with them, she and her husband decided that she should attend the conference. This good sister said, I took a seat in the middle of the auditorium, she wrote to Elder McConkie, and watched as you, Elder McConkie, shook hands with many before the meeting. I was delighted as I watched the smiles of many I recognized enjoying your touch and your smile. Through the meeting, throughout the meeting, I found it difficult to concentrate, and, it, as, and as it came to a close, I could hardly remain seated. As the closing prayer was said, I felt very calm. Then she continued, the Spirit whispered to me, you could go up on that stage and be healed by Brother McConkie. I replied, I don't want to bother him. Look at all those people who want to talk to him. I'm just thrilled that I was able to have heard him speak. Then the Spirit reminded me, just touch the edge of his jacket. As I recalled the story of the woman who had touched the hem of the Savior's garment, I'm sure I literally shook my head and said, no, I can't possibly do that. She and the Spirit continued the debate, and finally she went. As I made my way through the crowd, she wrote, I felt very anxious and wanted to turn around. But I edged forward until I finally was right behind you. She's writing this story to Elder McConkie. And you were engaged in conversation. I fixed my eyes upon your jacket edge and held my breath. You were so tall. I reached out and quickly touched with my index finger the hem of your jacket. And suddenly you spun around and extended your hand to me. I shook it and tearfully uttered, thank you. You simply nodded and returned to your conversation. And I went to my car practically dancing. When she entered her home, she announced to her husband that she was healed. They knelt together in a prayer of thanksgiving. The doctor was baffled. At the time of her writing, she had become the mother of three more children. Her faith had made her whole. Isn't that an awesome story? That power of the priesthood held by these apostles. Let me just share a couple with you from the biography of President Ballard, Anxiously Engaged, written by Susan Easton Black and Joseph Walker. On his first trip to Bolivia as an apostle, Elder Ballard was driven to a regional conference in La Paz, and before the conference began, 
Elder Ballard and other church leaders who were traveling with him greeted one man whose shirt was a different color, from the chest up as it was from the chest down. Through an interpreter, Elder Ballard learned that the man and his companions had come from the high plateau in the Andes Mountains called the Alto Palano. They had walked six hours before catching a ride in the back of a truck for an additional two hours, and during what had have to been an exhausting journey, the man had forded two rivers with water coming up to his chest, hence the different coloration in his shirt. Elder Ballard asked if the man had eaten. He had not. When asked if he had any money, he replied no. The man then explained his reason for coming to the conference. Brother Ballard, you are an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. My companions and I would walk for weeks if necessary to come to hear from one of his apostles what the Lord wants us to do. Elder Ballard was quite humbled by the man's faith. The leader saw that this man and his companions received food, shelter, and funds for their trip home. And now for the next story to show the miracle. While the group was traveling and holding meetings in Bolivia, they learned that the waters of Lake Titicaca, South America's largest lake, had been rising to crisis levels. Many people living near this lake, which straddles the border of Bolivia and Peru, had been flooded out, including many church members. Elder Ballard explained that we went up into that country to meet with those people to try to encourage them and to bless their lives and to let them know that we cared. We stood there on a little piece of dry land and looked at the damage caused by the rising waters. Before long, the other members of the traveling party returned to their vehicles in which they were traveling, anxious to be on their way to scheduled meetings. But Elder Ballard lingered on that piece of dry land, surveying the situation and pondering the possible responses. As he stood there alone, he said he had an impression come as powerfully as anything in his life. Here's what it was. You are an apostle. Bless the land. He asked those who were traveling with him to rejoin him on that dry piece of ground. I do not know what the Lord has in mind, but I know that I am to pronounce a blessing on this land, he told them. We joined in prayer, and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by and through the holy apostleship, which I had vested in me for less than a month, the power of God and the power of the Holy Ghost spoke through me to command the lake waters to recede and the land that the land might be reclaimed by its people. At the conclusion of the prayer, there were tears in many eyes, including Elder Ballard's. But after the people had returned to their cars and resumed their travel, he said he began to feel doubts and asked himself, as many of us would, what have I done? When I got back to my hotel room that night, I spent a good portion of the night on my knees, pleading with the Lord to somehow honor that prayer, Elder Ballard said. Within two weeks, he received reports out of both Bolivia and Peru indicating that the water levels of Lake Titicaca had miraculously dropped by 10 feet and that people were returning to their homes and telling their land. Hydrologists had no explanation for what had happened, Elder Ballard said, but those of us who were there knew and understood what had been done through the power of God. Now here's a post note. In 1986, Lake Titicaca in Bolivia rose 10 to 12 feet, flooding 27,000 acres of land. But after Elder Ballard prayed that the rains would cease in April of 86, the water level dropped 16 inches in only six weeks, despite expert predictions that it would take four to eight years to recede. I think that is just an awesome, incredible story. 
once again, to, that speaks not only to the power of God, but to the power that these men hold, that power of the priesthood. Now a reminder of a couple of key principles and doctrines taught in the book of Ephesians. Here's that first one in chapter 2. As the apostle Paul speaks to new converts of the church, saying that now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Yes, the Lord's church is built upon that foundation of apostles and prophets, and Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. In Ephesians 4, Paul explains that he, the Savior, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists. We learn later that that word can be translated into patriarch. And pastors and teachers for three reasons. In other words, let's just stick with apostles and prophets for a minute, but why do we have them? Verse 12, number one, for the perfecting of the saints. Number two, for the work of the ministry. And number three, to edify the body of Christ. Then Paul talks about why and how long, sorry, how long we need these offices on the earth. Number one, till we all become come into the unity of the faith, or in other words, when we all become the same faith. We know that hasn't happened. Number two, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Or in other words, until we all have a knowledge of the Son of God. And sorry, I, I added that unto a perfect man. Let's get rid of that for a minute. It goes in this next part. And then number three, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, another way to say that is that until we become perfect like the Savior, we need these apostles on the earth. And then Paul says in verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness that whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Or in other words, those prophets and apostles are anchors. They help anchor us to the Savior. And if we follow their teachings and instructions, we won't be carried away by every wind of doctrine. Now, here's a criticism that we hear often among even church members regarding our apostles and prophets, and that's that they're just not in touch with the issues. They just don't know what's going on out there. As I study the lives of these men, one of the things that I learn is how well read they are and how well informed they are, much more than, than ordinary people. Elder Holland explained it this way. He said, As the least of those who have been sustained by you to witness the guidance of this church firsthand, I say with all the fervor of my soul that never in my personal or professional life have I ever associated with any group who are so in touch, who know so profoundly the issues facing us, and who so look so deeply into the old, stay so open to the new, and weigh so carefully, thoughtfully, and prayerfully everything in between. I testify, he said, that the grasp of this body of men and women, the grasp they have of moral and societal issues, exceeds that of any think tank or brain trust of comparable endeavor of which I know not anywhere on earth. I bear personal witness of how thoroughly good they are and of how hard they work and of how humbly they live. It is no trivial matter 
for this church to declare to the world prophecy, seership, and revelation. But we do declare it. It is a true light shining in a dark world. Well, I love that from Elder Holland. I'm so grateful for this group of men who are so dedicated and consecrated in their callings to help and bless and to heal and to strengthen and edify the saints, just as the Apostle Paul spoke. In Acts chapter 4, we learn in verse 33 that apostles are to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 107, verse 23, these 12 apostles are called special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. They are special witnesses of Jesus Christ and of his resurrection. And there's been a lot of speculation in the church of what it means to be a special witness. Well, let's listen to the words of some of our prophets and apostles on that topic. This is from Joseph F. Smith. He said, All these, your brethren, that are called to the apostleship and minister in the midst of the house of Israel are endowed richly with the spirit of their calling. For instance, these twelve disciples of Christ are supposed to be eye and ear witnesses of the divine mission of Jesus Christ. It is not permissible for them to say, I believe, or simply I have accepted it because I believe it. The Lord informs us that they must know. They must get the knowledge for themselves. It must be with them and through them, as though they had seen with their eyes and heard with their ears and know the truth. And that is their mission, to testify of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead and clothed now with almighty power at the right hand of God as the Savior of the world. Now, Joseph Fielding Smith said it this way. He said, The question frequently comes up, is it necessary for members of the Quorum of the Twelve to see the Savior to be an apostle? He said this, It is their privilege to see him if the occasion requires. But the Lord has taught that there is a stronger witness than seeing a personage or even of the Son of God. Therefore, the seeing, even the Savior, does not leave as deep an impression in the mind as does the testimony or witness of the Holy Ghost. What is the lesson to be learned? That the impressions on the soul that come from the Holy Ghost are far more significant than a vision. It is where spirit speaks to spirit. So what Joseph Fielding Smith is teaching us is, look, there's even a higher order of revelation than sight, and it's receiving a witness from the Holy Ghost. So think about that for a minute, that a witness from the Spirit can be more powerful than a witness of sight. Now, this is Elder Packer. Occasionally, I've been asked a question. Usually it comes from a curious, almost idle question about the qualifications to stand as a witness for Christ. And the question is, have you seen him? Have you seen the Savior? Now, Elder Packer is going to teach us here. First, he's going to say, that's a question I've never asked of another. I have not asked that question to my brethren in the quorum, quorum, thinking that it would be so sacred and so personal that one would have to have some special inspiration or even authorization to ask that question. There are some things just too sacred to discuss. But then he said this, There is a process by which pure intelligence can flow, by which we can come to know of a surety, nothing doubting. And then he gives these examples. He said, for example, I've heard one of my brethren declare, I know from experiences too sacred to relate that Jesus is the Christ. 
I've heard another testify that I know that God lives and I, I know that the Lord lives. And more than that, I know the Lord. It was not their words that held the meaning of, or the power. It was the Spirit. For when a man speaketh by the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it into the hearts of the children of men. He's quoting 2 Nephi 33.1. And then Elder Packer said this, I declare to you that I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that he lives. He was born in the meridian of time. He taught the gospel, was tried and crucified. He rose on the third day. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. He has a body of flesh and bones. So I really like that. Now, the labor of an apostle is quite intensive. As we read in Matthew 28, their, their responsibilities are to the, the, the whole world. They are to go forth and preach the gospel to every creature, it says, in every part of the earth. It's a worldwide ministry. And to think of the ground that they cover, <laughs> the territory that they're over, is overwhelming. This is uh, Elder Packer who said, I am no different from the Brethren of the Twelve when I tell you that the record will show that I've been to Mexico, Central and South America more than 75 times, in Europe over 50 times, in Canada over 25 times, the islands of the Pacific 10 times, Asia 10 times, Africa 4 times, and China twice, and then to Israel, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the Dominican Republic, India, Pakistan, Egypt, Indonesia, and many other places around the globe. And they said, oh, and by the way, others have traveled a lot more than me. Now, I know a lot of you out there love to travel. I understand that completely. But I, I just have a feeling that by the time you've gone to Chile or somewhere in South America for the 75th time, I bet we would be thinking, okay, I'm good, right? But that is their life to cover the world. They are responsible for the world. I remember President Hinckley speaking at BYU years ago. It was in 1983. He was the only member of the First Presidency that was healthy. And so he kind of, you know, the church, in a sense, you know, fell on his shoulders as well as the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. But here he was speaking, and he said, I, I, you know, I excuse the deficiencies in the effort of speaking to you this morning by saying that I have been under tremendous pressures. He said, I returned yesterday from Santiago, Chile after flying all night. And by the way, how many people, if they flew all night from South America, would probably not give a talk at BYU the next day. But he said, we there dedicated a new temple. It was a marvelous experience. Prior to that, we were in similar places in Atlanta, Samoa, Tonga, and other parts of the world. I think I've spoken to 15 different congregations in the last 10 days, scattered from California to Santiago, Chile, to Detroit, Michigan. Just ahead is the general conference for which much preparation is needed. Now, this talk was given on September the 20th, so that tells us that probably in a couple of weeks, it's going to be a general conference. But as I listened to that talk, not read it, but listened to that message, you could just hear the tiredness, you know, in President Hinckley's voice. Uh, and then this from President Nelson. The apostolic duty is not limited to one continent or its people. The twelve are to teach the inhabitants of the na- in all the nations of the earth. Now, as I hear that, it reminds me of the time that I was called to be the bishop of my ward in Texas. And the night before that was to happen, my wife's parents had come up from Houston. We lived in Dallas at the time. We had gone out to eat, 
And then my father-in-law looked at me and said, now, do you know all of your responsibilities as a bishop? And I said, I think I know a lot of them. And he started to list this list. You know, he started to name this list or identify these these job descriptions, so to speak, these duties that I knew nothing about. And every time he threw one of these out, I just remember feeling heavier and heavier and almost sinking in my chair at this restaurant. And then to make things even cheerier, he said, oh, and by the way, not only are you responsible for every member of your ward, but you're also responsible for every person, whether they be a member of your church or not. And in McKinney, Texas, as you could guess, 95% of the people in those geographic ward boundaries were not members of the church. And I remember feeling completely overwhelmed. I can't imagine what it would be like to be an apostle and to have the responsibility for every inhabitant on the face of the earth. That would be so incredible to me and so overwhelming. But they bear that responsibility well. Every person they see, every person they lay their eyes on, they know that they have responsibility for that person. Their one chief concern, Elder Holland said, must be the advancement of the work of God in all the earth. They must be concerned with the welfare of our Father's children, both those within the church and those out of it. There we go. Actually, this is President Hinckley. Sorry about that. They must do all that they can do to give comfort to those who mourn, to give strength to those who are weak, to give encouragement to those who falter, to befriend the friendless, to nurture the destitute, to bless the sick, to bear witness, not only out of belief, but out of certain knowledge of the Son of God, their friend and master, whose servants they are. Oh, I just find that, once again, just amazing to have that worldwide responsibility. And you know what? Part of that worldwide responsibility opens their eyes and gives these apostles a perspective as they hear experiences from different people from all over the world. They understand things that I would I would suppose most of us wouldn't because we don't know what it's like to live in South America or in Africa or in Europe right now. So they're always learning. They're always gathering information. And yet, here's the amazing thing to me. As their ministry is worldwide, as their ministry is global, they continue to look out and seek for the one. And that is another theme to look for as we talk about the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, is how in the world do they do that? How do they stay fixed and focused on the one? I find that miraculous. You know, Elder Bednar I heard uh, speak one time where he said that uh, when he goes and visits a conference, if it's a state conference, area conference, whatever it is, that even though he's there to teach all the people that are in the congregation, he's always looking for one person. There was one reason why he came. How about this story by Elder Spencer V. Jones of the Quorum of the Seventy? He said, while attending a youth fireside with Elder Richard G. Scott, I noticed five youth scattered among the congregation whose countenances and body language almost screamed that something was spiritually amiss in their lives. And after the meeting, when I mentioned these five youths to Elder Scott, he simply replied, there were eight. I love that. Just meaning, you know, I, I see it. I'm seeing it. Well, another key area or topic to focus on today is what I'm going to call the apostolic charge. And the apostolic charge is interesting. In fact, I'm reading from Elder Holland here, and if you're not paying close attention, you can miss this. He talked about how when he was called to be an apostle, in a rapid sequence of events, 
That Thursday morning, President Hunter interviewed me at length, extended to me my call, formally introduced me to the First Presidency and the Twelve gathered in their temple meeting, gave me my apostolic charge, and then he goes on and talks about all the other things that happened that day. But if we read this too quick, we just pass over, wait, apostolic charge? What are you talking about? Well, it just so happens that two apostles, one in our day and one in uh, the early days of the church, that would be Parley P. Pratt and Elder David B. Haight, recorded this apostolic charge. And I don't want to pretend that I know all about it. I don't, I don't know all the details. I just know what's been recorded. But my assumption is that when an apostle is called, among other things, from the president of the church, or at least a member of the first presidency, they are given this charge which consists of some pretty powerful language. I'll read some of this to you. You have enlisted in a cause that requires your whole attention. Become a polished shaft. You must endure much toil, much labor, many privations to become perfectly polished. Beware of pride. Beware of evil. Cultivate great humility. Now, a lot of these these messages would apply to all of us, right? Strengthen your faith. But then how about this one? Prepare at all times to make a sacrifice of your life should God require it. Be always prayerful and be always watchful. You will need a fountain of wisdom, knowledge, and intelligence like you've never had and proclaim the gospel in simplicity and purity. But let's go back for a second. Prepare at all times to make a sacrifice of your life if God requires it. How many of us have been given a calling where the bishop said, oh, and by the way, you could probably get killed doing this. Are you still in? And I think we would say, I'm actually out. I'm, I'm good. I'm full. I'm, I'm just happy the way I am. Well, there's a little bit more here. Strengthen your faith. Cast off your doubts and your sins and your unbelief. And then nothing can prevent you from coming to God. And then this, your ordination is not full and complete until God has laid his hands upon you. Be zealous to save souls. And then this phrase again, that the adversary has always sought the life of the servants of God. You are therefore to be prepared at all times to make a sacrifice of your life should God require them and the advancement and the building up of his cause. Murmur not at God. Be always prayerful and watchful. We exhort you to be faithful in their calling. There must be no lack here. Or in other words, we're not going to have apathetic and inactive apostles, right? They are all in. And then, once again, have these apostles seen the Lord? Have they seen him? Well, here's the charge. Never cease striving until you have seen God face to face. If the Savior in former days laid his hands upon his disciples, then why not in the latter days? And so, once again, that question comes up a second time. Is, is it a requirement for an apostle to see the Savior? We'll stick with Joseph Fielding Smith, who said it's not a requirement, but they can if the occasion permits it. But here's Joseph Fielding Smith again, who said, This is an exacting duty upon the apostles to know that Jesus Christ is the very, in very deed, the only begotten Son and the Redeemer of the world. And then President Heber J. Grant, we have this testimony to bear to the world that men in our day have seen Jesus Christ, he said. Now, In case you're wondering, we definitely have some modern witnesses who have said some things that cause us to pause and really think and reflect as we we consider their testimonies. For example, David O. McKay. He said, My testimony of the risen Lord is just as real as Thomas's. 
who said to the resurrected Christ when he appeared to his disciples, My Lord, my God. He said, I know that he lives. He is God made manifest in the flesh. And there, there is no name under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. But when he says his testimony is that of Thomas's, and we know that Thomas was one who was able to touch the Savior, that's an interesting thought. How about Boyd K. Packer? I come to you this morning from an experience, a testing that I am sure no one would want to experience more than once in this lifetime. But I come with extended faith and with a positive witness. I want to affirm to you that whatever other qualifications I may lack, and perhaps they're numerous, for the calling that has come to me, the one I do have is the witness. I know for sure that Jesus is the Christ. Elder Maxwell said it a little bit differently. He said, Today I desire to hold up that light by testifying of Jesus Christ and what he has done according to what I know, have seen, felt, and heard in my life. My only regret is that what follows is apt to be the verbal equivalent of a child's enthusiastic finger painting because my tongue cannot tell all that I know. I witness that he lives with all those simple words imply. I know I will be held accountable for this testimony, but as hearers and readers, you are now accountable for my witness that I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just to have to think about that. How about President James E. Faust? I understand that a chief requirement for the Holy Apostleship is to be a personal witness of Jesus Christ as the divine Redeemer. And then he said, perhaps on that basis alone, I can qualify. Isn't that really interesting? I love it. Now, for those of you that are like, I'm just not sure. Well, President Kimball gets a little bit deeper. He said, I know that God lives. and I know that Jesus Christ lives, said my, press, press, uh, sorry, my predecessor, John Taylor, for I have seen him. And then President Kimball said, I bear this testimony to you. Okay. I like that. And then George Buchanan just leaves. He just removes all doubt. He says, look, I know that God lives. I know that Jesus lives for I have seen him. That's pretty plain. I testify to you of these things as one who knows, as one of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love George Buchanan for that reason. Let's now cover one last thought, and that is how unified these men are in the Quorum of the Twelve. President Packer explained what it's like to meet as a quorum, and he said, Every prayer is offered in the spirit of submission and obedience to him who called us and whose servants and witnesses we are. We know that we hold the power of the priesthood in connection with all those who have received a dispensation at any time from the beginning of creation. And I love this. I love this. He said, We think of those who have preceded us in these sacred offices, and at times, he said, we feel their presence. And then Elder Packer continued, There is a rule that we follow in the Quorum of the Twelve. A matter is not settled until there is a minute entry to evidence that all the brethren in the council assembled have come to a unity of feeling. That is how we function in council assembled. That provides safety for the church and a high comfort level for each of us who is personally accountable. Accountable Under that plan, men of very ordinary capacity may be guided through counsel and inspiration to accomplish extraordinary things. 
I love something that our prophet, President Nelson, when he was Elder Nelson, taught in General Conference. It was October 2014. The talk was entitled Sustaining the Prophets. He said, The calling of 15 men to the Holy Apostleship provides great protection for us as members of the church. Why? Because decisions of these leaders must be unanimous. Can you imagine how the Spirit needs to move upon 15 men to bring, it, to bring about unanimity? These 15 men have varied educational and professional backgrounds with differing opinions about many things. Trust me, he said. These 15 men, prophets, seers, and revelators, know what the will of the Lord is when unanimity is reached. They are committed to see that the Lord's will truly will be done. The Lord's Prayer provides a pattern for each of these 15 men. When they pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven. Oh, I love that from, from President Nelson. Just teaching us that for 15 men to be completely unified from different backgrounds and different experience in life is almost practically, it's practically a miracle, right? <clears throat> I love something really profound that President Hinckley taught in a general conference years ago. He said, there has never been a major action taken where this procedure of unanimity was not observed. He says, I've never observed any serious discord or personal enmity among my brethren. And he says, yet they speak their minds, they share their opinions, their beliefs. And then he said this, I have rather observed a beautiful, remarkable thing, the coming together under the directing influence of the Holy Spirit and under the power of revelation of divergent views until there is total harmony in full agreement. I love that process. I love that we can know a little bit about that process of how unified our apostles are as they come to understand the Lord's will. Let me close with an experience that I believe highlights how the Lord is directing the efforts of our apostles and prophets, that how much he loves them and uses them to be instruments in the hands of so many others. <clears throat> it comes from the life of President Monson. I think President Monson was such a wonderful apostle uh, that we could learn so much from him. He says, he learned this lesson from an experience years ago he mentions a man named Falkland Brown, who is the director of Mormon relationships for the Boy Scouts of America. He came to my office having learned that I was about to depart for a lengthy assignment to New Zealand. He told me of his widowed sister, Belva Jones, who had been stricken with terminal cancer, who knew not how to tell her only son, a missionary in that faraway country, in New Zealand. Her wish, her plea, was that he remain in the mission field, serve faithfully, she worried about his reaction for the missionary Elder Ryan Jones had just lost his father a year earlier to cancer as well. So just imagine it, it's this family, father's died of cancer, now mother's diagnosed of cancer and it doesn't look good, and Ryan Jones is in the mission field in New Zealand. President Monson said, or Elder Monson at the time, I accepted the responsibility and following a missionary meeting held adjacent to the majestically beautiful New Zealand temple, I met privately with Elder Jones, and as, a, as gently as I could, I explained the situation to his mother. Naturally, there were tears, not all his, but then the hand clasp of assurance and the pledge, tell my mother I will serve, I will pray, and that I will see her again. I returned to Salt Lake City just in time to attend a conference of the Lost River Stake in Moore, Idaho. 
As I sat on the stand with the stake present, my attention was drawn almost instinctively to the east side of the chapel where the morning sunlight bathed the lone occupant on a front bench. And I said to the stake present, who's the sister where the sunlight is resting? I feel I should speak to her today. He replied, her name is Belva Jones. She has a missionary son in New Zealand. She is very ill and has requested a blessing. Now, President Monson said, prior to that moment, I had not known where Belva Jones lived. My assignment that weekend could have been to any one of 50 stakes, yet the Lord in his own way had answered the prayer of faith of a concerned mother. We had a wonderful visit together. I reported word for word the reaction and the resolve of her son, Ryan. A blessing was provided. A prayer was offered. And Belva Jones would live to see her son complete his mission. This privilege she enjoyed just one month prior to her passing. His mission completed, Ryan returned home. Now, what are the chances of A, President Monson going to New Zealand and even finding Ryan Jones, and then B, just so happens that he ends up at Ryan's mother's state conference the very next week. The Lord is in the details, and he is directing the work of these apostles and prophets throughout the world. I am grateful for them. I am thankful for their influence on me. I know that they are living prophet seers and revelators who speak to the Lord and receive his will and teach us what the Lord has taught them. 